Hi everyone, this is Robert. Welcome to The Well-Told Tale. Every week we bring you the finest science fiction and fantasy stories ever written. Today we reach the penultimate episode of The Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells. Prendick has finally discovered the truth. Moreau has been experimenting with mixing humans and animals, but not to turn humans into animal hybrids to make animals more human. That's what all the beasts on the island are, experiments that haven't gone quite right. Moreau will not give up, though. He will keep experimenting, hurting animals and creating new hybrid monstrosities. What is Prendick to do now? He still can't escape, and he won't join Moreau. It's time to find out, as you pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy part five of The Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells. Fifteen. Concerning the Beast Folk. I woke early. Moreau's explanation stood before my mind, clear and definite, from the moment of my awakening. I got out of the hammock and went to the door to assure myself that the key was turned. Then I tried the window bar and found it firmly fixed. That these man-like creatures were in truth only bestial monsters, mere grotesque travesties of men, filled me with a vague uncertainty of their possibilities, which was far worse than any definite fear. A tapping came at the door, and I heard the glutinous accents of Mling speaking. I pocketed one of the revolvers, keeping one hand upon it, and opened to him. "'Good morning, sir.' he said, bringing in, in addition to the customary herb breakfast, an ill-cooked rabbit. Montgomery followed him. His roving eye caught the position of my arm, and he smiled askew. The puma was resting to heel that day, but Moreau, who was singularly solitary in his habits, did not join us. I talked with Montgomery to clear my ideas of the way in which the beast folk lived. In particular, I was urgent to know how these inhuman monsters were kept from falling upon Moreau and Montgomery and from rending one another. He explained to me that the comparative safety of Moreau and himself was due to the limited mental scope of these monsters. In spite of their increased intelligence and the tendency of their animal instincts to reawaken, they had certain fixed ideas implanted by Moreau in their minds which absolutely bounded their imaginations. They were really hypnotised, had been told that certain things were impossible, and that certain things were not to be done, and these prohibitions were woven into the texture of their minds beyond any possibility of disobedience or dispute. Certain matters, however, in which old instinct was at war with Moreau's convenience, were in a less stable condition. A series of propositions called the law I had already heard them recited, battled in their minds with the deep-seated, ever-rebellious cravings of their animal natures. This law they were ever repeating, I found, and ever breaking. Both Montgomery and Moreau displayed particular solicitude to keep them ignorant of the taste of blood. They feared the inevitable suggestions of that flavour. Montgomery told me that the law, especially among the feline beast people, became oddly weakened about nightfall, that then the animal was at its strongest, that a spirit of adventure sprang up in them at the dusk, when they would dare things they never seemed to dream about by day. 
To that I owed my stalking by the leopard man on the night of my arrival, but during these earlier days of my stay they broke the law only furtively and after dark. In the daylight there was a general atmosphere of respect for its multifarious prohibitions, and here perhaps I may give a few general facts about the island and the beast people. The island, which was of irregular outline and lay low upon the wide sea, had a total area, I suppose, of seven or eight square miles. It was volcanic in origin, and was now fringed on three sides by coral reefs, some fumaroles to the northward and a hot spring, were the only vestiges of the forces that had long since originated it. Now and then a faint quiver of earthquake would be sensible, and sometimes the ascent of the spire of smoke would be rendered tumultuous by gusts of steam, but that was all. The population of the island, Montgomery informed me, now numbered rather more than sixty of these strange creations of Moreau's art, not counting the smaller monstrosities which lived in the undergrowth and were without human form. Altogether he had made nearly a hundred and twenty, but many had died, and others, like the writhing footless thing of which he had told me, had come by violent ends. In answer to my question, Montgomery said that they actually bore offspring, but these generally died. When they lived, Moreau took them and stamped the human form upon them. There was no evidence of the inheritance of their acquired human characteristics. The females were less numerous than the males, and liable to much furtive persecution, in spite of the monogamy the law enjoined. It would be impossible for me to describe these beast people in detail. My eye has had no training in details, and unhappily I cannot sketch. Most striking, perhaps, in their general appearance was the disproportion between the legs of these creatures and the length of their bodies. And yet, so relative is our idea of grace, my eye became habituated to their forms, and at last I even fell in with their persuasion that my own long thighs were ungainly. Another point was the forward carriage of the head and the clumsy and inhuman curvature of the spine. Even the ape-man lacked that inward sinuous curve of the back which makes the human figure so graceful. Most had their shoulders hunched clumsily, and their short forearms hung weakly at their sides. Few of them were conspicuously hairy, at least until the end of my time upon the island. The next most obvious deformity was in their faces, almost all of which were prognathous, malformed about the ears with large noses, very furry or very bristly hair, and often strangely coloured or strangely placed eyes. None could laugh, though the ape-man had a chattering titter, Beyond these general characters, their heads had little in common. Each preserved the quality of its particular species. The human mark distorted, but did not hide the leopard, the ox, or the sow, or other animal or animals from which the creature had been moulded. The voices, too, varied exceedingly. The hands were always malformed, and although some surprised me by their unexpected human appearance... Almost all were deficient in the number of the digits, clumsy about the fingernails, and lacking any tactile sensibility. The two most formidable animal men were my leopard man and a creature made of hyena and swine. Larger than these were the three bull creatures who pulled in the boat, then came the silvery hairy man, who was also the sayer of the law, Mling, and a satyr-like creature of ape and goat. 
There were three swine men and a swine woman, a mare rhinoceros creature, and several other females whose sources I did not ascertain. There were several wolf creatures, a bear bull, and a St. Bernard man. I have already described the ape man, and there was a particularly hateful and evil-smelling old woman made of vixen and bear, whom I hated from the beginning. She was said to be a passionate votary of the law. Smaller creatures were certain dappled youths and my little sloth creature, but enough of this catalogue. At first, I had a shivering horror of the brutes, felt all too keenly that they were still brutes, but insensibly I became a little habituated to the idea of them, and moreover I was affected by Montgomery's attitude towards them. He had been with them so long that he had come to regard them as almost normal human beings. His London days seemed a glorious, impossible past to him. Only once in a year or so did he go to Erica to deal with Moreau's agent, a trader in animals there, and he hardly met the finest type of mankind in that seafaring village. The men aboard ship, he told me, seemed at first just as strange to him as the beastmen seemed to me. Unnaturally long in the leg, flat in the face, prominent in the forehead, suspicious, dangerous, and cold-hearted. In fact, he did not like men. His heart had warmed to me, he thought, because he had saved my life. I fancied even then that he had a sneaking kindness for some of these metamorphosed brutes, a vicious sympathy with some of their ways, but that he attempted to veil it from me at first. Mling, the black-faced man, Montgomery's attendant, the first of the beast folk I had encountered, did not live with the others across the island, but in a small kennel at the back of the enclosure. The creature was scarcely so intelligent as the ape-man, but far more docile, and the most human-looking of the beast folk, and Montgomery had trained it to prepare food, and indeed to discharge all the trivial domestic offices that were required. It was a complex trophy of Moreau's horrible skill, a bear tainted with dog and ox, and one of the most elaborately made of all his creatures. It treated Montgomery with a strange tenderness and devotion. Sometimes he would notice it, pat it, call it half-mocking, half-jocular names, and so made it caper with extraordinary delight. Sometimes he would ill-treat it, especially after he had been at the whisky, kicking it, beating it, pelting it with stones or lighted fuses. But whether he had treated it well or ill, it loved nothing so much as to be near him. I say I became habituated to the beast people, that a thousand things which had seemed unnatural and repulsive speedily became natural and ordinary to me. I suppose that everything in existence takes its colour from the average hue of our surroundings. Montgomery and Moreau were too peculiar and individual to keep my general impressions of humanity well defined. I would see one of the clumsy bovine creatures who worked the launch treading heavily through the undergrowth, and find myself asking, trying hard to recall, how he differed from some really human yokel trudging home from his mechanical labours, or I would meet the fox-bear woman's vulpine shifty face, strangely human in its speculative cunning, and even imagine I had met it before in some city byway. Yet every now and then the beast would flash out upon me beyond doubt or denial, 
An ugly-looking man, a hunchbacked human, savage to all appearances, squatting in the aperture of one of the dens, would stretch his arms and yawn, showing with startling suddenness scissor-edged incisors and sabre-like canines, keen and brilliant as knives. Or in some narrow pathway, glancing with a transitory daring into the eyes of some lithe, white-swathed female figure, I would suddenly see, with a spasmodic revulsion, that she had slit-like pupils, or, glancing down, note the curving nail with which she held her shapeless wrap around her. It is a curious thing, by the by, for which I am quite unable to account that these weird creatures, the females, I mean, had in the earlier days of my stay an instinctive sense of their own repulsive clumsiness, and displayed in consequence a more than human regard for the decency and decorum of extensive costume. 16. How the Beast Folk Taste Blood My inexperience as a writer betrays me, and I wander from the thread of my story. After I had breakfasted with Montgomery, he took me across the island to see the fumarole and the source of the hot spring into whose scalding waters I had blundered on the previous day. Both of us carried whips and loaded revolvers, While going through a leafy jungle on the road thither, we heard a rabbit squealing. We stopped and listened, but we heard no more, and presently we went on our way, and the incident dropped out of our minds. Montgomery called my attention to certain little pink animals with long hind legs that went leaping through the undergrowth. He told me that they were creatures made of the offspring of the beast people that Moreau had invented. He had fancied they might serve for meat, but a rabbit-like habit of devouring their young had defeated this intention. I had already encountered some of these creatures, once during my moonlight flight from the Leopard Man, and once during my pursuit by Moreau on the previous day. By chance, one hopping to avoid us leapt into a hole caused by the uprooting of a wind-blown tree. Before it could extricate itself, we managed to catch it. It spat like a cat, scratching and kicking vigorously with its hind legs and made an attempt to bite, but its teeth were too feeble to inflict more than a painless pinch. It seemed to me rather a pretty little creature, and as Montgomery stated that it never destroyed the turf by burrowing and was very cleanly in its habits, I should imagine it might prove a convenient substitute for the common rabbit in gentlemen's parks. We also saw on our way the trunk of a tree barked in long strips and splintered deeply. Montgomery called my attention to this. Not to claw bark off trees, that is the law, he said. Much some of them care for it. It was after this, I think, that we met the satyr and the ape-man. The satyr was a gleam of classical memory on the part of Moreau, his face ovine in expression, his voice a harsh bleat, his nether extremities satanic. He was gnawing the husk of a pod-like fruit as he passed us. Both of them saluted Montgomery. Hail, said they, to the other with the whip. There's a third with the whip now, said Montgomery, so you'd better mind. Was he... Not made, said the ape man. He said he was made. The satyr man looked curiously at me. The thing with the whip, he that walks weeping into the sea, has a thin white face. He has a thin long whip, said Montgomery. Yesterday he bled and wept, said the satyr. 
You never bleed nor weep. The master does not bleed or weep. You'll bleed and weep if you don't look out, said Montgomery. He has five fingers. He is a five-man, like me, said the ape-man. Come along, Prendick, said Montgomery, taking my arm, and I went on with him. The satyr and the ape-man stood watching us and making other remarks to each other. He says nothing, said the satyr. Men have voices. Yesterday he asked me of things to eat, said the ape-man. He did not know. Then they spoke inaudible things, and I heard the satyr laughing. It was on our way back that we came upon the dead rabbit. The red body of the wretched little beast was rent to pieces, many of the ribs stripped white, and the backbone indisputably gnawed. At that, Montgomery stopped. "'Good God!' said he, stooping down and picking up some of the crushed vertebrae to examine them more closely. "'Good God!' he repeated. "'What can this mean?' "'Some carnivore of yours has remembered its old habits,' I said after a pause. "'This backbone has been bitten through.' He stood staring with his face white and his lip pulled askew. "'I don't like this,' he said slowly. "'I saw something of the same kind,' said I, "'the first day I came here.' "'The devil you did! "'What was it?' "'A rabbit with its head twisted off.' "'The day you came here?' The day I came here, in the undergrowth at the back of the enclosure, when I went out in the evening, the head was completely wrung off. He gave a long, low whistle. And what is more, I have an idea which of your brutes did the thing. It's only a suspicion, you know. Before I came on the rabbit, I saw one of your monsters drinking in the stream. Sucking his drink? Yes. Not to suck your drink. That is the law— "'Much the brutes care for the law, eh, when Moreau's not around?' "'It was the brute who chased me.' "'Of course,' said Montgomery. "'It's just the way with carnivores. After a kill, they drink. "'It's the taste of blood, you know. "'What was the brute like?' he continued. "'Would you know him again?' "'He glanced about us, standing astride over the mess of the dead rabbit, "'his eyes roving among the shadows and screens of greenery, "'the lurking places of the forest that bounded us in.' "'The taste of blood,' he said again. "'He took out his revolver, examining the cartridges in it, and replaced it. "'Then he began to pull at his dropping lip. "'I think I should know the brute again,' said I. "'I stunned him. He ought to have a handsome bruise on the forehead of him.' "'But then we have to prove that he killed the rabbit,' said Montgomery. "'I wish I'd never brought the things here.' I should have gone on, but he stayed there thinking over the mangled rabbit in a puzzle-headed way. As it was, I went to such a distance that the rabbit's remains were hidden. "'Come on,' I said. Presently he woke up and came towards me. "'You see,' he said, almost in a whisper, "'they were all supposed to have a fixed idea against eating anything that runs on land. If some brute has by any accident tasted blood—' We went on some way in silence. "'I wonder what can have happened,' he said to himself. Then, after a pause again, "'I did a foolish thing the other day. That servant of mine, I showed him how to skin and cook a rabbit. It's odd I saw him licking his hands. It never occurred to me. Then we must put a stop to this. 
I must tell Moreau. He could think of nothing else on our homeward journey. Moreau took the matter even more seriously than Montgomery, and I need scarcely say that I was affected by their evident consternation. "'We must make an example,' said Moreau. "'I've no doubt in my own mind that the leopard man was the sinner, but how can we prove it? I wish, Montgomery, you had kept your taste for meat in hand and gone without these exciting novelties. We may find ourselves in a mess yet through it.' "'I was a silly ass,' said Montgomery, "'but things done now, and you said I might have them, you know.' "'You must see to the thing at once,' said Moreau. "'I suppose if anything should turn up, Ling can take care of himself?' "'I'm not so sure of Ling," said Montgomery. "'I think I ought to know him.' In the afternoon, Moreau, Montgomery, myself and Ling went across the island to the huts in the ravine. We three were armed. Ling carried the little hatchet he used in chopping firewood and some of the coils of wire. Moreau had a huge cowherd's horn slung over his shoulder. "'You will see a gathering of the beast people,' said Montgomery. "'It is a pretty sight.' Moreau said not a word on the way, but the expression of his heavy, white-fringed face was grimly set. We crossed the ravine down which smoked the stream of hot water and followed the winding pathway through the cane breaks until we reached a wide area covered over with a thick powdery yellow substance which I believe was sulphur. Above the shoulder of a weedy bank the sea glittered. We came to a kind of shallow natural amphitheatre and here the four of us halted. Then Moreau sounded the horn and broke the sleeping stillness of the tropical afternoon. He must have had strong lungs. The hooting note rose and rose amidst its echoes to at last an ear-penetrating intensity. Ah, said Moreau, letting the curved instrument fall to his side again. Immediately there was a crashing through the yellow canes and a sound of voices from the dense green jungle that marked the morass through which I had run on the previous day. Then, at three or four points on the edge of the sulphurous area, appeared the grotesque forms of the beast people hurrying towards us. I could not help a creeping horror as I perceived first one and then another trot out from the trees or reeds or come shambling along over the hot dust, but Moreau and Montgomery stood calmly enough and perforce I stuck beside them. First to arrive was the satyr, strangely unreal for all that he cast a shadow and tossed the dust with his hooves. After him from the break came a monstrous lout, a thing of horse and rhinoceros, chewing a straw as it came. Then appeared the swine-woman and two wolf-women, then the fox-bear witch with her red eyes in her peaked red face, and then others, all hurrying eagerly. As they came forward, they began to cringe towards Moreau and chant, quite regardless of one another, fragments of the latter half of the litany of the law. His is the hand that wounds, his is the hand that heals, and so forth. As soon as they had approached within distance of perhaps thirty yards, they halted, and bowing on knees and elbows began flinging the white dust upon their heads. 
Imagine the scene, if you can. We three blue-clad men with our misshapen black-faced attendant standing in a wide expanse of sunlit yellow dust under the blazing blue sky, and surrounded by this circle of crouching and gesticulating monstrosities, some almost human save in their subtle expression and gestures, some like cripples, some so strangely distorted as to resemble nothing but the denizens of our wildest dreams, and beyond... The reedy lines of the cane break in one direction, a dense tangle of palm trees on the other, separating us from the ravine with the huts, and to the north, the hazy horizon of the Pacific Ocean. Sixty-two, sixty-three, counted Moreau. There are four more. I do not see the leopard man, said I. Presently Moreau sounded the great horn again, and at the sound of it all the beast people writhed and grovelled in the dust, then slinking out of the canebrake, stooping near the ground and trying to join the dust-throwing circle behind Moreau's back, came the leopard man. The last of the beast people to arrive was the little ape man. The earlier animals, hot and weary with their grovelling, shot vicious glances at him. "'Cease!' said Moreau in his firm, loud voice, and the beast people sat back upon their hams and rested from their worshipping. "'Where is the sayer of the law?' said Moreau, and the hairy grey monster bowed his face in the dust. "'Say the words,' said Moreau. Forthwith, all in the kneeling assembly, swaying from side to side and dashing up the sulphur with their hands, first the right hand and a puff of dust and then the left, began once more to chant their strange litany. When they reached, not to eat flesh or fish, that is the law, Moreau held up his lank white hand. Stop! he cried, and there fell absolute silence upon them all. I think they all knew and dreaded what was coming. I looked round at their strange faces. When I saw their wincing expressions and the furtive dread in their bright eyes, I wondered that I had ever believed them to be men. "'That law has been broken,' said Moreau. "'None escape,' from the faceless creature with the silvery hair. "'None escape,' repeated the kneeling circle of beat people. "'Who is he?' cried Moreau and looked round at their faces, cracking his whip. I fancied the hyena swine looked dejected, so too did the leopard man. Moreau stopped, facing this creature, who cringed towards him with the memory and dread of infinite torment. "'Who is he?' repeated Moreau, in a voice of thunder. "'Evil is he who breaks the law,' chanted the sayer of the law. Moreau looked into the eyes of the leopard man and seemed to be dragging the very soul out of the creature. "'Who breaks the law?' said Moreau, taking his eyes off his victim and turning towards us. It seemed to me there was a touch of exultation in his voice. "'Goes back to the house of pain!' they all clamoured. "'Goes back to the house of pain, O master!' "'Back to the house of pain! Back to the house of pain!' gabbled to the ape-man, as though the idea was sweet to him. "'Do you hear?' said Moreau, turning back to the criminal. "'My friend? Hello?' The leopard-man, released from Moreau's eye, had risen straight from his knees, and now, with eyes aflame and his huge feline tusks flashing out from under his curling lips, leapt towards his tormentor. 
I am convinced that only the madness of unendurable fear could have prompted this attack. The whole circle of threescore monsters seemed to rise about us. I drew my revolver. The two figures collided. I saw Moreau reeling back from the leopard man's blow. There was a furious yelling and howling all about us. Everyone was moving rapidly. For a moment I thought it was a general revolt. The furious face of the leopard man flashed by mine with Mling close in pursuit. I saw the yellow eyes of the hyena swine blazing with excitement, his attitude as if he were half resolved to attack me. The satyr, too, glared at me over the hyena swine's hunched shoulders. I heard the crack of Moreau's pistol, and saw the pink flash dart across the tumult. The whole crowd seemed to swing round in the direction of the glint of fire, and I, too, was swung round by the magnetism of the movement. In another second, I was running, one of a tumultuous shouting crowd in pursuit of the escaping leopard man. That is all I can tell you, definitely. I saw the leopard man strike Moreau, and then everything spun about me until I was running headlong. Mling was ahead, close in pursuit of the fugitive. Behind, their tongues already lolling out, ran the wolf women in great leaping strides. The swine folk followed, squealing with excitement, and the two bull men in their swathings of white. Then came Moreau in a cluster of the beast people, his wide-brimmed straw hat blown off, his revolver in hand and his lank white hair streaming out. The hyena swine ran beside me, keeping pace with me and glancing furtively at me out of its feline eyes, and the others came pattering and shouting behind us. The leopard man went bursting his way through the long canes, which sprang back as he passed and rattled in Mling's face, we others in the rear found a trampled path for us when we reached the break. The chase lay through the break for perhaps a quarter of a mile, and then plunged into a dense thicket, which retarded our movements exceedingly, though we went through it in a crowd together, fronds flicking into our faces, ropey creepers catching us under the chin or gripping our ankles, thorny plants hooking into and tearing clothes and flesh together. "'He has gone on all fours through this,' panted Moreau, now just ahead of me. "'None escape,' said the wolf-bear, laughing into my face with the exultation of hunting. We burst out again among rocks, and saw the quarry ahead, running lightly on all fours and snarling at us over his shoulder. At that, the wolf-folk howled with delight. The thing was still clothed, and at a distance its face seemed human, but the carriage of its four limbs was feline, and the furtive droop of its shoulder was distinctly that of a hunted animal. It leapt over some thorny, yellow-flowering bushes, and was hidden. Umling was halfway across the space. Most of us now had lost the first speed of the chase, and had fallen into a longer and steadier stride. I saw as we traversed the open that the pursuit was now spreading from a column into a line. The hyena swine still ran close to me, watching me as it ran— every now and then puckering its muzzle with a snarling laugh. At the end of the rocks, the leopard man, realising that he was making for the projected cape upon which he had stalked me on the night of my arrival, had doubled in the undergrowth. But Montgomery had seen the manoeuvre and turned him again. So, panting, tumbling against rocks, torn by brambles, impeded by ferns and reeds, I helped to pursue the leopard man who had broken the law, and the hyena swine ran, laughing savagely at my side, I staggered on, my head reeling and my heart beating against my ribs, tired almost to death, and yet not daring to lose sight of the chase, lest I should be left alone with this horrible companion. I staggered on, in spite of infinite fatigue and the dense heat of the tropical afternoon. 
At last, the fury of the hunt slackened. We had pinned the wretched brute into a corner of the island. Moreau, whip in hand, marshalled us all into an irregular line, and we had advanced now slowly, shouting to one another as we advanced and tightening the cordon about our victim. He lurked noiseless and invisible in the bushes through which I had run from him during that midnight pursuit. "'Steady!' cried Moreau. "'Steady!' as the ends of the line crept round the tangle of undergrowth and hemmed the brute in. "'Where a rush!' came the voice of Montgomery from beyond the thicket. I was on the slope above the bushes. Montgomery and Moreau beat along the beach beneath. Slowly we pushed in among the fretted network of branches and leaves. The quarry was silent. "'Back to the house of pain! The house of pain! The house of pain!' yelped the voice of the ape-man now twenty yards to my right. When I heard that, I forgave the poor wretch all the fear he had inspired in me. I heard the twigs snap and the boughs swish aside before the heavy tread of the horse-rhinoceros upon my right. Then suddenly, through a polygon of green, in the half-darkness under the luxuriant growth, I saw the creature we were hunting. I halted, He was crouched together into the smallest possible compass, his luminous green eyes turned over his shoulder regarding me. It may seem a strange contradiction in me, I cannot explain the fact, but now, seeing the creature there in a perfectly animal attitude, with the light gleaming in its eyes and its imperfectly human face distorted with terror, I realised again the fact of its humanity. In another moment, other of its pursuers would see it, and it would be overpowered and captured, to experience once more the horrible tortures of the enclosure. Abruptly, I slipped out my revolver, aimed between its terror-struck eyes, and fired. As I did so, the hyena swine saw the thing, and flung herself upon it with an eager cry, thrusting thirsty teeth into its neck. All about me the green masses of the thicket were swaying and cracking as the beast people came rushing together. One face and then another appeared. "'Don't kill it, Prendick,' said Moreau. "'Don't kill it!' And I saw him stooping as he pushed through under the fronds of the big ferns. In another moment he had beaten off the hyena swine with the handle of his whip, and he and Montgomery were keeping away the excited carnivorous beast people, and particularly Ling from the still quivering body. The hairy, grey thing came sniffing at the corpse under my arm. The other animals, in their animal ardour, jostled me to get a nearer view. "'Confound you, Prendick!' said Moreau. "'I wanted him!' "'I'm sorry,' said I, though I was not. It was the impulse of the moment. I felt sick with exertion and excitement. Turning, I pushed my way out of the crowded beast people and went on alone up the upper slope towards the higher part of the headland. Under the shouted direction of Moreau, I heard the three white-swathed bullmen begin dragging the victim down towards the water. It was easy now for me to be alone. The beast people manifested a quite human curiosity about the dead body, and followed it in a thick knot, sniffing and growling at it as the bullmen dragged it down the beach. I went to the headland and watched the bullmen, black against the evening sky as they carried the weighted dead body out to sea, and like a wave across my mind came the realisation of the unspeakable aimlessness of things upon the island. Upon the beach among the rocks beneath me were the ape-man, the hyena-swine and several other of the beast-people, standing about Montgomery and Moreau. 
They were all still intensely excited, and all overflowing with noisy expressions of their loyalty to the law, yet I felt an absolute assurance in my own mind that the hyena swine was implicated in the rabbit killing. A strange persuasion came upon me that, save for the grossness of the line, the grotesqueness of the forms, I had here before me the whole balance of human life in miniature, the whole interplay of instinct, reason and fate in its simplest form. The leopard man had happened to go under, that was all the difference, poor brute. Poor brutes. I began to see the viler aspect of Moreau's cruelty. I had not thought before of the pain and trouble that came to these poor victims after they had passed from Moreau's hands, I had shivered only at the days of actual torment in the enclosure, but now that seemed to me the lesser part. Before they had been beasts, their instincts fitly adapted to the surroundings and happy as living things may be. Now they stumbled in the shackles of humanity, lived in a fear that never died, fretted by a law they could not understand. Their mock human existence, begun in an agony, was one long internal struggle, one long dread of Moreau. And for what? It was the wantonness of it that stirred me. Had Moreau had any intelligible object, I could have sympathised at least a little with him. I am not so squeamish about pain as that. I could have forgiven him a little, even, had his motive been only hate. But he was so irresponsible, so utterly careless. His curiosity, his mad, aimless investigations drove him on, and the things were thrown out to live a year or so, to struggle and blunder and suffer, and at last to die painfully. They were wretched in themselves, the old animal hate moved them to trouble one another, the law held them back from a brief hot struggle and a decisive end to their natural animosities. In those days, my fear of the beast people went the way of my personal fear for Moreau. I fell indeed into a morbid state, deep and enduring and alien to fear, which has left permanent scars upon my mind. I must confess that I lost faith in the sanity of the world when I saw it suffering the painful disorder of this island. A blind fate, a vast, pitiless mechanism, seemed to cut and shape the fabric of existence, and I, Moreau, by his passion for research, Montgomery, by his passion for drink, the beast people with their instincts and mental restrictions were torn and crushed, ruthlessly, inevitably, amid the infinite complexity of its incessant wheels. But this condition did not come all at once. I think indeed that I anticipate a little in speaking of it now. 17. A Catastrophe Scarcely six weeks passed before I had lost every feeling but dislike and abhorrence for this infamous experiment of Moreau's. My one idea was to get away from these horrible caricatures of my maker's image, back to the sweet and wholesome intercourse of men. My fellow creatures, from whom I was thus separated, began to assume idyllic virtue and beauty in my memory. My first friendship with Montgomery did not increase, his long separation from humanity, his secret vice of drunkenness, his evident sympathy with the beast people tainted him to me. Several times I let him go alone among them. I avoided intercourse with them in every possible way. I spent an increasing proportion of my time upon the beach, looking for some liberating sail that never appeared. Until one day there fell upon us an appalling disaster. 
which put an altogether different aspect upon my strange surroundings. It was about seven or eight weeks after my landing, rather more, I think, though I had not troubled to keep account of the time when this catastrophe occurred. It happened in the early morning. I should think about six. I had risen and breakfasted early, having been aroused by the noise of three beastmen carrying wood into the enclosure. After breakfast, I went to the open gateway of the enclosure and stood there smoking a cigarette and enjoying the freshness of the early morning. Moreau presently came round the corner of the enclosure and greeted me. He passed by me, and I heard him behind me unlock and enter his laboratory. So indurated was I at that time to the abomination of the place that I heard, without a touch of emotion, the puma victim begin another day of torture. It met its persecutor with a shriek. Then suddenly something happened. I do not know what to this day. I heard a short, sharp cry behind me, a fall, and turning, saw an awful face rushing upon me, not human, not animal, but hellish, brown, seamed with red branching scars, red drops started out upon it, and the lidless eyes ablaze. I threw up my arm to defend myself from the blow that flung me headlong with a broken forearm, and the great monster, swathed in lint with red-stained bandages fluttering about it, leapt over me and passed. I rolled over and over down the beach, tried to sit up, and collapsed upon my broken arm. Then Moreau appeared, his massive white face all the more terrible for the blood that trickled from his forehead. He carried a revolver in one hand. He scarcely glanced at me, but rushed off at once in pursuit of the puma. I tried the other arm and sat up. The muffled figure in front ran in great striding leaps across the beach, and Moreau followed her. She turned her head and saw him, then doubling, abruptly made for the bushes. She gained upon him at every stride. I saw her plunge into them, and Moreau, running slantingly to intercept her, fired and missed as she disappeared. Then he, too, vanished in the green confusion. I stared after them, and then the pain in my arm flared up, and with a groan I staggered to my feet. Montgomery appeared in the doorway, dressed with his revolver in his hand. "'Great God, Prendick,' he said, not noticing that I was hurt. "'That brute's loose! Tore the fetter out of the wall! Have you seen them?' Then sharply, seeing I gripped my arm, "'What's the matter?' "'I was standing in the doorway,' said I. He came forward and took my arm. "'Blood on the sleeve,' said he, and rolled back the flannel. He pocketed his weapon, felt my arm about painfully, and led me inside. "'Your arm is broken,' he said. And then, "'Tell me exactly how it happened. What happened?' I told him what I had seen, told him in broken sentences, with gasps of pain between them, and very dexterously and swiftly he bound my arm meanwhile. He slung it from my shoulder, stood back, and looked at me. "'You'll do,' he said. "'And now?' he thought. Then he went out and locked the gates of the enclosure. He was absent some time. I was chiefly concerned about my arm. The incident seemed merely one more of many horrible things. I sat down on the deck chair, and I must admit swore heartily at the island. The first dull feeling of injury in my arm had already given way to a burning pain when Montgomery reappeared. His face was rather pale, and he showed more of his lower gums than ever. "'I can neither see nor hear anything of him,' he said. "'I've been thinking he may want my help.' He stared at me with his expressionless eyes. "'That was a strong brute,' he said. "'It simply wrenched its fetter out of the wall.' 
He went to the window, then to the door, and there turned to me. "'I shall go after him,' he said. "'There's another revolver I can leave with you. "'To tell you the truth, I feel anxious somehow.' He obtained the weapon and put it ready to my hand on the table, then went out, leaving a restless contagion in the air. I did not sit long after he left, but took the revolver in hand and went to the doorway. The morning was as still as death. Not a whisper of wind was stirring. The sea was like polished glass, the sky empty, the beach desolate. In my half-excited, half-feverish state, the stillness of things oppressed me. I tried to whistle, and the tune died away. I swore again, the second time that morning. Then I went to the corner of the enclosure and stared inland at the green brush that had swallowed up Moreau and Montgomery. When would they return, and how? Then far away up the beach a little grey beast-man appeared, ran down to the water's edge and began splashing about. I strolled back to the doorway, then to the corner again, and so began pacing to and fro like a sentinel upon duty. Once I was arrested by the distant voice of Montgomery, bawling, Cooey! Moreau! My arm became less painful, but very hot. I got feverish and thirsty. My shadow grew shorter. I watched the distant figure until it went away again. Would Moreau and Montgomery never return? Three seabirds began fighting for some stranded treasure. Then, from far away behind the enclosure, I heard a pistol shot. A long silence, and then came another. Then a yelling cry nearer, and another dismal gap of silence. My unfortunate imagination set to work to torment me. Then suddenly a shot close by. I went to the corner, startled, and saw Montgomery, his face scarlet, his hair disordered, and the knee of his trousers torn. His face expressed profound consternation. Behind him slouched the beast-man, Mling, and round Mling's jaws were some queer, dark stains. "'Has he come?' said Montgomery. "'Moreau,' said I, "'no.' "'My God!' the man was panting, almost sobbing. "'Go back in,' he said, taking my arm. "'They're mad! They're all rushing about mad! What could have happened? I don't know! I'll tell you when my breath comes. Where's some brandy?' Montgomery limped before me into the room and sat down in the deck chair. Umling flung himself down just outside the doorway and began panting like a dog. I got Montgomery some brandy and water. He sat staring in front of him at nothing, recovering his breath. After some minutes he began to tell me what had happened. He had followed their track for some way. It was plain enough at first on account of the crushed and broken bushes, white rags torn from the puma's bandages, and occasional smears of blood on the leaves of the shrubs and undergrowth. He lost the track, however, on the stony ground beyond the stream where I had seen the beast-man drinking, and went wandering aimlessly westward, shouting Moreau's name. Then Mling had come to him carrying a light hatchet. Mling had seen nothing of the puma affair, had been felling wood and heard him calling. They went on shouting together. Two beastmen came crouching and peering at them through the undergrowth with gestures and a furtive carriage that alarmed Montgomery by their strangeness. He hailed them, and they fled guiltily. He stopped shouting after that, and after wandering some time further in an undecided way, determined to visit the huts. He found the ravine deserted. Growing more alarmed every minute, he began to retrace his steps. Then it was he encountered the two swine-men I had seen dancing on the night of my arrival. Blood-stained they were about the mouth and intensely excited. 
They came crashing through the ferns and stopped with fierce faces when they saw him. He cracked his whip in some trepidation, and forthwith they rushed at him. Never before had a beast-man dared to do that. One he shot through the head, Mling flung himself upon the other, and the two rolled grappling. Mling got his brute under, and with his teeth in its throat, and Montgomery shot that too as it struggled in Mling's grip. He had some difficulty in inducing Mling to come with him. Thence they had hurried back to me. On the way, Mling had suddenly rushed into a thicket and driven out an undersized ocelot man, also blood-stained and lame through a wound in the foot. This brute had run a little way and then turned savagely at bay, and Montgomery, with a certain wantonness, I thought, had shot him. "'What does it all mean?' said I. He shook his head and turned once more to the brandy. 18. The Finding of Moreau When I saw Montgomery swallow a third dose of brandy, I took it upon myself to interfere. He was already more than half-fuddled. I told him that some serious thing must have happened to Moreau by this time, or he would have returned before this, and that it behoved us to ascertain what that catastrophe was. Montgomery raised some feeble objections, and at last agreed. We had some food, and then all three of us started. It is possibly due to the tension of my mind at the time, but even now that start into the hot stillness of the tropical afternoon is a singularly vivid impression. Mling went first, his shoulder hunched, his strange black head moving with quick starts as he peered first on this side of the way and then on that. He was unarmed, his axe he had dropped when he encountered the swine man. Teeth were his weapons when it came to fighting. Montgomery followed with stumbling footsteps, his hands in his pockets, his face downcast. He was in a state of muddled sullenness with me on account of the brandy. My left arm was in a sling, it was lucky it was my left, and I carried my revolver in my right. Soon we traced a narrow path through the wild luxuriance of the island going northwestward, and presently Mling stopped and became rigid with watchfulness. Montgomery almost staggered into him and then stopped too. Then, listening intently, we heard coming through the trees the sound of voices and footsteps approaching us. "'He is dead,' said the deep, vibrating voice. "'He is not dead! He is not dead!' jabbered another. "'We saw! We saw!' said several voices. "'Hello?' suddenly shouted Montgomery. "'Hello there!' "'Confound you!' said I, and gripped my pistol." There was a silence, then a crashing among the interlacing vegetation, first here, then there, and then half a dozen faces appeared, strange faces lit by a strange light. Mling made a growling noise in his throat. I recognised the ape-man. I had indeed already identified his voice, and two of the white-swathed, brown-featured creatures I had seen in Montgomery's boat. With these were the two dappled brutes and that grey, horribly crooked creature who said the law, with grey hair streaming down its cheeks, heavy grey eyebrows and grey locks pouring off from a central parting upon its sloping forehead, a heavy, faceless thing with strange red eyes looking at us curiously from amidst the green. For a space no one spoke, then Montgomery hiccoughed. Who said he was dead? The monkey-man looked guiltily at the hairy, grey thing. "'He is dead,' said this monster. "'They saw.' There was nothing threatening about this detachment, at any rate. They seemed awe-stricken and puzzled. 
"'Where is he?' said Montgomery. "'Beyond,' and the grey creature pointed. "'Is there a law now?' asked the monkey-man. "'Is it still to be this and that? Is he dead indeed?' "'Is there a law?' repeated the man in white. "'Is there a law, thou other with a whip?' "'He is dead,' said the hairy grey thing, and they all stood watching us. "'Prendick?' said Montgomery, turning his dull eyes to me. "'He's dead, evidently.' I had been standing behind him during this time. I began to see how things lay with them. I suddenly stepped in front of Montgomery and lifted up my voice. "'Children of the law,' I said, "'he is not dead.' Umling turned his sharp eyes on me. "'He has changed his shape. He has changed his body,' I went on. "'For a time you will not see him. He is—' There, I pointed upward, where he can watch you. You cannot see him, but he can see you. Fear the law. I looked at them squarely. They flinched. He is great. He is good, said the ape-man, peering fearfully upward among the dense trees. And the other thing? I demanded. The thing that bled and ran screaming and sobbing, that is dead too said to the grey thing, still regarding me. "'That's well,' grunted Montgomery. "'The other with the whip,' began the grey thing. "'Well,' said I, "'said he was dead.' But Montgomery was still sober enough to understand my motive in denying Moreau's death. "'He is not dead,' he said slowly. "'Not dead at all. No more dead than I am.' "'Some,' said I, have broken the law. They will die. Some have died. Show us now where his old body lies, the body he cast away because he had no more use of it. It is this way, man who walked in the sea, said the grey thing. And with these six creatures guiding us, we went through the tumult of ferns and creepers and tree stems towards the northwest. Then came a yelling, a crashing among the branches, and a little pink homunculus rushed by us, shrieking. Immediately after appeared a monster in headlong pursuit, blood-covered, who was amongst us almost before he could stop his career. The grey thing leapt aside. Umling, with a snarl, flew at it and was struck aside. Montgomery fired and missed, bowed his head, threw up his arm, and turned to run. I fired, and the thing still came on, fired again, point-blank into its ugly face. I saw its features vanish in a flash, its face was driven in, yet it passed me, gripped Montgomery, and holding him, fell headlong beside him, and pulled him sprawling upon itself in its death agony. I found myself alone with Ling, the dead brute, and the prostrate man. Montgomery raised himself slowly and stared in a muddled way at the shattered beast-man behind him. It had more than half sobered him. He scrambled to his feet— then I saw the grey thing returning cautiously through the trees. "'See,' said I, pointing to the dead brute, "'is the law not alive? This came of breaking the law.' He peered at the body. "'He sends the fire that kills,' said he, in his deep voice, repeating part of the ritual. The others gathered round and stared for a space. At last we drew near the westward extremity of the island. We came upon the gnawed and mutilated body of the puma, its shoulder bones smashed by a bullet, and perhaps twenty yards further found at last what we sought. 
Moreau lay face downward in a trampled space in a canebrake. One hand was almost severed at the wrist and his silvery hair was dabbled in blood. His head had been battered in by the fetters of the puma. Broken canes beneath him were smeared with blood. His revolver we could not find. Montgomery turned him over. Resting at intervals and with the help of the seven beast people, for he was a heavy man, we carried Moreau back to the enclosure. The night was darkling. Twice we heard unseen creatures howling and shrieking past our little band, and once the little pink sloth creature appeared and stared at us and vanished again. But we were not attacked again. At the gate of the enclosure our company of beast people left us, Mling going with the rest. We locked ourselves in, then took Moreau's mangled body into the yard and laid it upon a pile of brushwood. Then we went to the laboratory and put an end to all we found living there. And welcome back. I hope you enjoyed part five of The Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells. I release many of these stories I narrate as audiobooks. Alice in Wonderland, The Call of Cthulhu and more are available from the welltoldtale.net if you're interested in that, or head over to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash thewelltoldtale if you want more classic stories. There are links to both in the description. I'll be back next week with the final part of The Island of Dr. Moreau. I hope you can join me. <laughs>